0: DEDICATION, PREFACE, AND SECTION 1 OF ARMY LETTERS FROM AN OFFICER'S WIFE, 1871-1888. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. ARMY LETTERS FROM AN OFFICER'S WIFE, 1871-1888 by Francis Rowe. Dedication. To my comrade Faye. Army letters from an officer's wife. Preface. Perhaps it is not necessary to say that the events mentioned in the letters are not imaginary. Perhaps the letters themselves tell that. They are truthful accounts of experiences that came into my own life with the Army in the Far West, whether they be about Indians desperadoes, or hunting, not one little thing has been stolen. They are of a life that has passed, as has passed the buffalo and the antelope. Yes, and the log and adobe quarters for the army. All flowery descriptions have been omitted, as it seemed that a simple, concise narration of events as they actually occurred was more in keeping with the life, and that which came into it. FRANCIS M. A. ROWE END OF PREFACE ARMY LETTERS FROM AN OFFICER'S WIFE eighteen seventy-one, eighteen eighty-eight. SECTION 1 LETTERS FROM 1871 KIT CARSON, COLORADO TERRITORY, OCTOBER 1871 IT IS LATE, SO THIS CAN ONLY BE A NOTE, TO TELL YOU THAT WE ARRIVED HERE SAFELY, AND we WILL TAKE THE STAGE FOR FORT LYON TOMORROW MORNING AT SIX O'CLOCK. I AM THANKFUL ENOUGH THAT OUR STAY IS SHORT IN THIS TERRIBLE PLACE, WHERE ONE FEELS THERE IS DANGER OF BEING MURDERED ANY MINUTE. NOT ONE WOMAN HAVE I SEEN HERE. BUT THERE ARE MEN, ANY NUMBER OF DREADFUL-LOOKING MEN, EACH ONE ARMED WITH BIG PISTOLS AND LEATHER BELTS FULL OF CARTRIDGES. But the houses we saw as we came from the station were worse even than the men. They looked in the moonlight like huge cakes of clay, where spooks and creepy things might be found. The hotel is much like the houses, and appears to have been made of dirt and a few dry-good boxes. Even the low roof is of dirt. The whole place is horrible, and dismal beyond description." And just why anyone lives here, I cannot understand. I am all upset. Faye has just been in to say that only one of my trunks can be taken on the stage with us, and of course, I had to select one that has all sorts of things in it, and consequently leave my pretty dresses here to be sent for, all but the Japanese silk which happens to be in that trunk. But imagine my mortification in having to go with Faye to his regiment with only two dresses. And then, to make my shortcomings the more vexatious, Fay will be simply fine all the time in his brand-new uniform. Perhaps I can send a long letter soon, if I live to reach that army post that still seems so far away. End of Letter Fort Lyon, Colorado Territory, October, 1871 After months of anticipation and days of weary travel, we have at last got to our Army home. As you know, Fort Lyon is fifty miles from Kit Carson, and we came all that distance in a funny-looking stagecoach called a Jerky, and a good name for it, too, for at times it seesawed back and forth and then sideways in an awful breakneck way. The day was glorious, and the atmosphere so clear We could see miles and miles in every direction, but there was not one object to be seen on the vast rolling plains, not a tree nor a house, except the wretched ranch and stockade where we got fresh horses and a perfectly uneatable dinner. It was dark when we reached the post, so of course we could see nothing that night. General and Mrs. Phillips gave us a most cordial welcome, just as though they had known us always. Dinner was served soon after we arrived, and the cheerful dining room and the table with its dainty china and bright silver was such a surprise, so much nicer than anything we had expected to find here, and all so different from the terrible places we had seen since reaching the plains. It was apparent at once that this was not a place for spooks. General Phillips is not a real general, only so by brevet, for gallant service during the war. I was so disappointed when I was told this, but Fay says that he is very much afraid that I will have cause, sooner or later, to think that the grade of captain is quite high enough. He thinks this way because, having graduated at West Point this year, he is only a second lieutenant just now, and General Phillips is his captain and company commander. It seems that in the army, lieutenants are called Mr. Always but all the other officers must be addressed by their rank. At least that is what they tell me. But in Fay's company, the captain is called general, and the first lieutenant is called major, and this is most confusing. I get things mixed sometimes. Most girls would. A soldier in uniform waited upon us at dinner, and that seemed so funny, I wanted to watch him all the time, which distracted me. I suppose for once I called General Phillips Mr. It so happened, too, that just that instant there was not a sound in the room, so everyone heard the blunder. General Phillips straightened back in his chair, and his little son gave a smothered giggle, for which he should have been sent to bed at once. But that was not all. That soldier who had been so dignified and stiff, put his hand over his mouth, and fairly rushed from the room so he could laugh outright. And how I longed to run someplace, too, but not to laugh. Oh, no. These soldiers are not nearly as nice as one would suppose them to be, when one sees them dressed up in their blue uniforms with bright brass buttons. And they can make mistakes, too. For yesterday, when I asked that same man a question, he answered, Yes, sir. Then I smiled, of course, but he did not seem to have enough sense to see why. When I told Faye about it, he looked vexed and said, I must never laugh at an enlisted man, that it was not dignified in the wife of an officer to do so. And then I told him that an officer should teach an enlisted man not to snicker at his wife and not to call her sir, which was disrespectful. I wanted to say more, but Faye suddenly left the room the post is not all as you and I imagined it to be. There is no high wall around it as there is at Fort Trumbull. It reminds me of a prim little village built around a square, in the center of which is a high flagstaff and a big cannon. The buildings are very low and broad and are made of adobe, a kind of clay and mud mixed together, and the walls are very thick. At every window are heavy wooden shutters that can be closed during severe sand and windstorms. A little ditch, they call it Asequia, runs all around the post and brings water to the trees and lawns. But water for use in the houses is brought up in wagons from the Arkansas River and is kept in barrels. Yesterday morning, our first here, we were awakened by the sounds of fife and drum that became louder and louder until finally I thought the whole army must be marching to the house. I stumbled over everything in the room in my haste to get to one of the little dormer windows, but there was nothing to be seen, as it was still quite dark. The drumming became less loud, and then ceased altogether, when a big gun was fired that must have wasted any amount of powder, for it shook the house and made all the windows rattle then three or four bugles played a little air which it was impossible to hear because of the horrible howling and crying of dogs such howls of misery you never heard they made me shiver this all suddenly ceased and immediately there were lights flashing some distance away and dozens of men seemed to be talking all at the same time some of them shouting here here i began to think that perhaps indians had come upon us and called to Fay, who informed me in a sleepy voice that it was only Reveille roll call, and that each man was answering to his name. There was the same performance this morning, and at breakfast I asked General Phillips why soldiers required such a beating of drums and deafening racket generally to awaken them in the morning. But he did not tell me, said it was an old army custom to have the drums beaten along the officer's walk at Reveille, Yesterday morning, directly after guard mounting, Faye put on his full-dress uniform, epaulettes, beautiful scarlet sash and sword, and went over to the office of the commanding officer to report officially. The officer in command of the post is lieutenant colonel of the regiment. But he also is a general by brevet, and one can see by his very walk that he expects this to be remembered always. So... It is apparent to me that the safest thing to do is to call everyone General. There seem to be so many here. If I make a mistake, it will be on the right side, at least. Much of the furniture in this house was made by soldier carpenters here at the post, and is not only very nice, but cost General Phillips almost nothing. And, as we have to buy everything, I said at dinner last evening that we must have some precisely like it supposing of course that general phillips would feel highly gratified because his taste was admired but instead of the smile and gracious acquiescence i had expected there was another straightening back in the chair and a silence that was ominous and chilling finally he recovered sufficient breath to tell me that at present there were no good carpenters in the company later on however I learned that only captains and officers of higher rank can have such things. The captains seem to have the best of everything, and the lieutenants are expected to get along with smaller houses, much less pay, and much less everything else, and at the same time perform all of the disagreeable duties. Faye is wonderfully amiable about it, and assures me that when he gets to be a captain, I will see that it is just and fair but I happen to remember that he told me not long ago that he might not get his captaincy for 20 years. Just think of it a whole long lifetime, and always a mister, too, and perhaps by that time it will be just and fair for the lieutenants to have everything. We saw our house yesterday, quarters, I must learn to say, and it is ever so much nicer than we had expected it to be, all of the officers' quarters are new, and this set has never been occupied. It has a hall with a pretty stairway, three rooms and a large shed downstairs, and two rooms and a very large hall closet on the second floor. A soldier is cleaning the windows and floors and making things tidy generally. Many of the men like to cook and do things for officers of their company, thereby adding to their pay and these men are called strikers. There are four companies here, three of infantry and one troop of cavalry. You must always remember that Fay is in the infantry. With the cavalry he has a classmate and a friend also, which will make it pleasant for both of us. In my letters to you I will disregard army etiquette and call the lieutenants by their rank, otherwise you would not know of whom I was writing." An officer or civilian Lieutenant Baldwin has been on the frontier many years and is an experienced hunter of buffalo and antelope. He says that I must commence riding horseback at once and has generously offered me the use of one of his horses. Missus Phillips insists upon my using her saddle until I can get one from the east so I can ride as soon as our trunks come and I am to learn to shoot pistols and guns and do all sorts of things. We are to remain with General and Mrs. Phillips several days, while our own house is being made habitable, and in the meantime our trunks and boxes will come, also the colored cook. I have not missed my dresses very much. There has been so much else to think about. There is a little store just outside the post that is named Post Traders, where many useful things are kept and we have just been there to purchase some really nice furniture that an officer left to be sold when he was retired last spring. We got only enough to make ourselves comfortable during the winter, for it seems to be the general belief here that these companies of infantry will be ordered to camp supply Indian territory in the spring. It must be a most dreadful place, with old log houses built in the hot sand hills and surrounded by almost every tribe of hostile Indians. It may not be possible for me to write again for several days, as I will be very busy getting settled in the house. I must get things arranged just as soon as I can, so I will be able to go out on horseback with Fay and Lieutenant Baldwin. End of letter. Fort Lyon, Colorado Territory, October 1871. When a very small girl, I was told many wonderful tales about a grand Indian chief called Red Jacket by my great-grandmother, who you will remember saw him a number of times when she also was a small girl. And since then, almost all my life, I have wanted to see with my very own eyes an Indian, a real noble red man, dressed in beautiful skins embroidered with beads, and on his head long, waving feathers. Well, I have seen an Indian, a number of Indians, but they were not red jackets, neither were they noble red men. They were simply, and only, painted, dirty, and nauseous-smelling savages. Mrs. Phillips says that Indians are all alike, and that when you have seen one, you have seen them all. And she must know, for she has lived on the frontier a long time and has seen many Indians of many tribes. We went to Los Animas yesterday, Mrs. Phillips, Mrs. Cole, and I, to do a little shopping. There are several small stores in the half-Mexican village where curious little things from Mexico can often be found. If one does not mind poking about underneath the trash and dirt that is everywhere, While we were in the largest of these shops, ten or twelve Indians dashed up to the door on their ponies, and four of them slipping down came in the store and passed on quickly to the counter furthest back where the ammunition is kept. As they came toward us in their imperious way, never once looking to the right or to the left, they seemed like giants and to increase in size and numbers with every step. Their coming was so sudden we did not have a chance to get out of their way, and it so happened that Mrs. Phillips and I were in their line of march, and when the one in the lead got to us, we were pushed aside with such impatient force that we both fell over on the counter. The others passed on just the same, however, and if we had fallen to the floor, I presume they would have stepped over us and otherwise been oblivious to our existence. This was my introduction to an Indian, the noble red man. As soon as they got to the counter they demanded powder, balls, and percussion caps, and as these things were given them they were stuffed down their muzzle-loading rifles, and what could not be rammed down the barrels was put in greasy skin bags and hidden under their blankets. I saw one test the sharp edge of a long wicked-looking knife and then it also disappeared under his blanket. All this time the other Indians were on their ponies in front, watching every move that was being made around them. There was only the one small door to the little adobe shop, and into this an Indian had ridden his piebald pony. Its forefeet were up a step on the sill, and its head and shoulders were in the room, which made it quite impossible for us three frightened women to run out in the street. So, we got back of a counter, and as Mrs. Phillips expressed it, midway between the devil and the deep sea. There certainly could be no mistake about the devil side of it. It was an awful situation to be in, and one to terrify anybody. We were actually prisoners, penned in with all those savages, who were evidently in an ugly mood, with quantities of ammunition within their reach, and only two white men to protect us. Even the few small windows had iron bars across. They could have killed every one of us, and ridden far away before anyone in the sleepy town found it out. Well, when those inside had been given, or had helped themselves to whatever they wanted, out they all marched again, quickly and silently, just as they had come in, They instantly mounted their ponies, and all rode down the street and out of sight at race speed, some leaning so far over on their little beasts that one could hardly see the Indian at all. The pony that was ridden into the store door was without a bridle, and was guided by a long strip of buffalo skin, which was fastened around his lower jaw by a slipknot. It is amazing to see how tractable the Indians can make their ponies with only that one rein, The storekeeper told us that these Indians were Utes, and were greatly excited because they had just heard there was a small party of Cheyennes down the river two or three miles. The Utes and Cheyennes are bitter enemies. He said that the Utes were very cross, ready for the blood of Indian or white man. Therefore he had permitted them to do about as they pleased while in the store, particularly as we were there, and he saw that we were frightened, That young man did not know that his own swarthy face was a greenish-white all the time those Indians were in the store. Not one penny did they pay for the things they carried off. Only two years ago, the entire Ute nation was on the warpath, killing every white person they came across. And one must have much faith in Indians to believe that their change of heart has been so complete that these Utes have learned to love the white man in so short a time. No, there was hatred in their eyes as they approached us in that store, and there was restrained murder in the hand that pushed Mrs. Phillips and me over. They were all hideous, with streaks of red or green paint on their faces that made them look like fiends. Their hair was roped with strips of bright colored stuff, and hung down on each side of their shoulders in front, and on the crown of each black head was a small tightly plated lock ornamented at the top with a feather, a piece of tin or something fantastic. These were their scalp locks. They wore blankets over dirty old shirts and of course had on long trouser-like leggings of skin and moccasins. They were not tall but rather short and stocky. The odor of those skins and of the Indians themselves in that stuffy little shop I expect to smell the rest of my life. We heard this morning that those very savages rode out on the plains in a roundabout way so as to get in advance of the Cheyennes and then had hidden themselves on the top of a bluff, overlooking the trail they knew the Cheyennes to be following, and had fired upon them as they passed below, killing two and wounding a number of others. You can see how treacherous these Indians are, and how very far from noble is their method of warfare. They are so disappointing too, so wholly unlike Cooper's red men. We were glad enough to get in the ambulance and start on our way to the post, but alas, our troubles were not over. The mules must have felt the excitement in the air, for as soon as their heads were turned toward home, they proceeded to run away with us. We had the four little mules that are the special pets of the quartermaster and are known throughout the garrison as the shaved tails because the hair on their tails is kept closely cut down to the very tips where it is left in a square brush of three or four inches. They are perfectly matched, coal black all over except their little noses and are quite small. They are full of mischief and full of wisdom too, even for government mules and when one says, let's take a sprint, the others always agree. About that there is never the slightest hesitation. Therefore, when we first heard the scraping of the brake and saw that the driver was pulling and sawing at the tough mouths with all his strength, no one was surprised. But we said that we wished they had waited until we had crossed the Arkansas River. But we got over the narrow bridge without meeting more than one man, who climbed over the railing, and seemed less anxious to meet us than we were to meet him. As soon as we got on the road again, those mules, with preliminary kicks and shakes of their big heads, began to demonstrate how fast they could go. We had the best driver at the post, and the road was good and without sharp turns, but the ambulance was high and swayed, and the pace was too fast for comfort. The little mules ran and ran, and we held ourselves on our seats the best we could, expecting to be tipped over any minute. When we reached the post, they made a wonderful turn and took us safely to the government corral, where they stopped just when they got ready. One leader looked around at us and commenced to bray, but the driver was in no mood for such insolence and jerked the poor thing almost down three tired, disheveled women walked from the corral to their homes, and very glad one of them was to get home, too. Hereafter, I shall confine myself to horseback riding, for even if John is frisky at times, I prefer to take my chances with the one horse to four little long-eared government mules. But I have learned to ride very well, and have a secure seat now, my teachers, Fay and Lieutenant Baldwin, have been most exacting, but that I wanted. Of course, I ride the army way, tight in the saddle, which is more difficult to learn. Any attempt to rise when on a trot is ridiculed at once here, and it does look absurd after seeing the splendid and graceful riding of the officers. I am learning to jump the cavalry hurdles and ditches, too. I must confess, however, that, taking a ditch the first time was more exciting than enjoyable john seemed to like it better than i did end of letter fort lyon colorado territory november 1871 in many of my letters i have written about learning to ride and to shoot and have told you also of having followed the greyhounds after coyotes and rabbits with fay and lieutenant baldwin These hunts exact the very best of riding and a fast horse, for coyotes are very swift and so are jackrabbits too, and one look at a greyhound will tell anyone that he can run, and about twice as fast as the big-eared foxhounds in the east. But I started to write you about something quite different from all this, to tell you of a really grand hunt I have been on, a splendid chase after buffalo. A week or so ago it was decided that a party of enlisted men should be sent out to get buffalo meat for Thanksgiving dinner for everybody, officers and enlisted men, and that Lieutenant Baldwin, who is an experienced hunter, should command the detail. You can imagine how proud and delighted I was when asked to go with them, Lieutenant Baldwin saying that the hunt would be worth seeing and well repay one for the fatigue of the hard ride so one morning after an early breakfast the horses were led up from the stables each one having on a strong halter and a coiled picket rope with an iron pin fastened to the saddle these were carried so that if it should be found necessary to secure the horses on the plains they could be picketed out the bachelor's set of quarters is next to ours so we all got ready together and i must say that the deliberate way in which each girth was examined bridles fixed rifles fastened to saddles and other things done was most exasperating but we finally started about seven o'clock lieutenant baldwin and i taking the lead and Fay and lieutenant alden following the day was very cold with a strong wind blowing so i wore one of Fay's citizen caps with tabs tied down over my ears and a large silk handkerchief around my neck all of which did not improve my looks in the least, but it was quite in keeping with the dressing of the officers, who had on buckskin shirts, with handkerchiefs, leggings, and moccasins. Two large army wagons followed us, each drawn by four mules, and carrying several enlisted men. Mounted orderlies led extra horses that officers and men were to ride when they struck the herd. Well, we rode twelve miles without seeing one living thing, and then we came to a little adobe ranch where we dismounted to rest a while. By this time our feet and hands were almost frozen, and Fay suggested that I should remain at the ranch until they returned. But that I refused to do, to give up the hunt was not to be thought of, particularly as a ranchman had just told us that a small herd of buffalo had been seen that very morning, only two miles further on. So when the horses were a little rested, we started, and after riding a mile or more, we came to a small ravine, where we found one poor buffalo, too old and emaciated to keep up with his companions, and who therefore had been abandoned by them to die alone. He had eaten the grass as far as he could reach, and had turned around and around, "'until the ground looked as though it had been spaded. "'He got up on his old legs as we approached him "'and tried to show fight by dropping his head "'and throwing his horns to the front. "'But a child could have pushed him over. "'One of the officers tried to persuade me to shoot him, "'saying it would be a humane act "'and at the same time give me the prestige "'of having killed a buffalo.' BUT THE VERY THOUGHT OF POINTING A PISTOL AT ANYTHING SO WEAK AND UTTERLY HELPLESS WAS REVOLTING IN THE EXTREME. HE WAS SUCH AN OBJECT OF PITY, TOO, LEFT THERE ALL ALONE TO DIE OF STARVATION, WHEN PERHAPS AT ONE TIME HE MAY HAVE BEEN THE LEADER OF HIS herd. HE WAS VERY TALL, HAD A FINE HEAD, WITH AN UNCOMMONLY LONG BEARD, and showed every indication of having been a grand specimen of his kind. We left him undisturbed, but only a few minutes later we heard the sharp report of a rifle, and at once suspected, what we learned to be a fact the next day, that one of the men with the wagons had killed him. Possibly this was the most merciful thing to do, but to me that shot meant murder THE PITIFUL, BLEARY EYES OF THE HELPLESS OLD BEAST HAVE HAUNTED ME EVER SINCE WE SAW HIM. WE MUST HAVE GONE AT LEAST TWO MILES FURTHER BEFORE WE SAW THE HERD WE WERE LOOKING FOR, MAKING FIFTEEN OR SIXTEEN MILES ALTOGETHER THAT WE HAD RIDDEN. THE BUFFALO WERE GRAZING QUIETLY ALONG A MEADOW IN BETWEEN LOW, ROLLING HILLS. WE IMMEDIATELY FELL BACK A SHORT DISTANCE AND WAITED FOR THE WAGONS and when they came up there was great activity, I assure you. The officers' saddles were transferred to their hunters, and the men who were to join in the chase got their horses and rifles ready. Lieutenant Baldwin gave his instructions to everybody, and all started off, each one going in a different direction, so as to form a cordon, Faye said, around the whole herd. Faye would not join in the hunt, but remained with me the entire day." he and I rode over the hill, stopping when we got where we could command a good view of the valley and watch the run. It seemed only a few minutes when we saw the buffalo start, going from some of the men, of course, who at once began to chase them. This kept them running straight ahead and, fortunately, in Lieutenant Baldwin's direction, who apparently was holding his horse in, waiting for them to come. We saw through our field glasses that, as soon as they got near enough, He made a quick dash for the herd, and, cutting one out, had turned it so it was headed straight for us. Now, being on a buffalo hunt at a safe distance off was one thing, but to have one of those huge animals come thundering along like a steam engine directly upon you was quite another. I was on one of Lt. Baldwin's horses, too, and I felt there might be danger of his bolting to his companion, Tom, when he saw him dashing by and as i was not anxious to join in a buffalo chase just at that time i begged faye to go with me further up the hill but he would not go back one step assuring me that my horse was a trained hunter and accustomed to such sights lieutenant baldwin gained steadily on the buffalo and in a wonderfully short time both passed directly in front of us within a hundred feet faye said Lieutenant Baldwin was close upon him then, his horse looking very small and slender by the side of the grand animal that was taking easy, swinging strides, apparently without effort and without speed, his tongue lolling at one side. But we could see that the pace was really terrific, that Lieutenant Baldwin was freely using the spur, and that his swift thoroughbred was stretched out like a greyhound, straining every muscle in his effort to keep up. He was riding close to the buffalo on his left, with revolver in his right hand, and I wondered why he did not shoot. But Fay said it would be useless to fire then, that Lieutenant Baldwin must get up nearer the shoulder, as a buffalo is vulnerable only in certain parts of his body, and that a hunter of experience like Lieutenant Baldwin would never think of shooting unless he could aim at heart or lungs. My horse behaved very well, just whirling around a few times. But Fay was kept busy a minute or two by his, for the poor horse was awfully frightened, and lunged and reared and snorted. But I knew that he could not unseat Fay, so I rather enjoyed it, for, you know, I had wanted to go back a little. Lieutenant Baldwin and the buffalo were soon far away, and when our horses had quieted down, we recalled that shots had been fired in another direction, and, looking about, we saw a pathetic sight. Lieutenant Alden was on his horse, and facing him was an immense buffalo, standing perfectly still, with chin drawn in and horns to the front ready for battle. It was plain to be seen that the poor horse was not enjoying the meeting, for every now and then he would try to back away or give a jump sideways. The buffalo was wounded and unable to run, but he could still turn around fast enough to keep his head toward the horse, and this he did every time Lieutenant Alden tried to get an aim at his side. There was no possibility of his killing him without assistance, and, of course, the poor beast could not be abandoned in such a helpless condition, so Fay decided to go over and worry him while Lieutenant Alden got in the fatal shot. As soon as Fay got there, I put my fingers over my ears so that I would not hear the report of the pistol. After a while I looked across and there was the buffalo still standing and both Fay and Lieutenant Alden were beckoning for me to come to them. At first I could not understand what they wanted and I started to go over. But it finally dawned upon me that they were actually waiting for me to come and kill that buffalo. I saw no glory in shooting a wounded animal, so I turned my horse back again, but had not gone far before I heard the pistol shot. Then I rode over to see the huge animal and found Faye and Lieutenant Alden in a state of great excitement. They said he was a magnificent specimen, unusually large and very black, what they call a blue skin, with a splendid head and beard. I had been exposed to a bitterly cold wind without the warming exercise of riding for over an hour, and my hands were so cold and stiff that I could scarcely hold the reins. So they jumped me up on the shoulders of the warm body, and I buried my hands in the long fur on his neck. He fell on his wounded side and looked precisely as though he was asleep, so much so that I half expected him to spring up and resent the indignity he was being subjected to. Very soon after that, Faye and I came on home, reaching the post about seven o'clock. We had been in our saddles most of the time for twelve hours on a cold day and were tired and stiff, and when Faye tried to assist me from my horse, I fell to the ground in a heap, But I got through the day very well, considering the very short time I have been riding, that is, really riding. The hunt was a grand sight, and something that probably I will never have the chance of seeing again. And, to be honest, I do not want to see another, for the sight of one of those splendid animals running for his life is not a pleasant one. The rest of the party did not come in until several hours later, but they brought the meat and skins of four buffalo and the head of lieutenant alden's which he will send east to be mounted the skin he intends to take to an indian camp to be tanned by the squaws lieutenant baldwin followed his buffalo until he got in the position he wanted and then killed him with one shot face says that only a cool head and experience could have done that much depends upon the horse too "'for so many horses are afraid of a buffalo "'and lunge sideways just at the critical moment. "'Several experienced hunters tell marvelous tales "'of how they have stood within a few yards of a buffalo "'and fired shot after shot from a Springfield rifle "'straight at his head, the balls producing no effect whatever, "'except perhaps a toss of the head "'and the flying out of a tuft of hair.' every time the ball would glance off from the thick skull. The wonderful mat of curly hair must break the force some too. This mat, or cushion, in between the horns of the buffalo Lieutenant Alden killed, was so thick and tangled that I could not begin to get my fingers in it. End of Letter Fort Lyon, Colorado Territory, December, 1871 Our first Christmas on the frontier was ever so pleasant, but it certainly was most vexatious not to have that box from home, and I expect that it has been at Kit Carson for days, waiting to be brought down. We had quite a little Christmas without it, however, for a number of things came from the girls, and several women of the garrison sent pretty little gifts to me. It was so kind and thoughtful of them to remember that I might be a bit homesick just now, All the little presents were spread out on a table, and in a way to make them present as fine an appearance as possible. Then I printed in large letters on a piece of cardboard one box, contents unknown, and stood it up on the back of the table. I did this to let everyone know that we had not been forgotten by home people. My beautiful new saddle was brought in also, for although I had had it several weeks, it was really one of Faye's Christmas presents to me. They have such a charming custom in the army of going along the line Christmas morning, and giving each other pleasant greetings, and looking at the pretty things everyone has received. This is a rare treat out here, where we are so far from shops and beautiful Christmas displays. We all went to the bachelor's quarters, almost everyone taking over some little remembrance Homemade candy, cakes, or something of that sort. I had a splendid cake to send over that morning, and I will tell you just what happened to it. At home, we always had a large fruit cake made for the holidays long in advance, and I thought I would have one this year as near like it as possible, but it seemed that the only way to get it was to make it. So, about four weeks ago, I commenced. It was quite an undertaking for me, as I had never done anything of the kind, and perhaps I did not go about it the easiest way, but I knew how it should look when done, and of course I knew precisely how it should taste. Eliza makes delicious everyday cake, but was no assistance whatever with the fruit cake, beyond encouraging me with the assurance that it would not matter in the least if it should be heavy." Well, for two long, tiresome days, I worked over that cake, preparing with my own fingers every bit of the fruit, which I consider was a fine test of perseverance and staying qualities. After the ingredients were all mixed together, there seemed to be enough for a whole regiment, so we decided to make two cakes of it. They looked lovely when baked, and just right, and smelled so good, too, I wrapped them in nice white paper that had been wet with brandy and put them carefully away, one in a stone jar, the other in a tin box, and felt that I had done a remarkably fine bit of housekeeping. The bachelors have been exceedingly kind to me, and I rejoiced at having a nice cake to send them Christmas morning. But, alas, I forgot that the little house was fragrant with the odor of spice and fruit and that there was a man about who was ever on the lookout for good things to eat. It is a shame that those cadets at West Point are so starved. They seem to be simply famished for months after they graduate. It so happened that there was choir practice that very evening, and that I was at the chapel an hour or so. When I returned, I found three bachelors sitting around the open fire, "'smoking and looking very comfortable indeed. "'Before I was quite in the room, "'they all stood up and began to praise the cake. "'I think Faye was the first to mention it, "'saying it was a great success. "'Then the other said, "'perfectly delicious, and so on, "'but at the same time assuring me "'that a large piece had been left for me. "'For one minute I stood still, "'not in the least grasping their meaning.' "'But finally I suspected mischief. "'They all looked so serenely contented. "'So I passed on to the dining-room, "'and there, on the table, "'was one of the precious cakes, "'at least what was left of it, "'the very small piece "'that had been so generously saved for me. "'And there were plates with crumbs and napkins "'that told the rest of the sad tale, "'and there was wine and empty glasses also.' "'Oh, yes! Their early Christmas had been a fine one. "'There was nothing for me to say or do, at least not just then. "'So I went back to the little living-room "'and forced myself to be halfway pleasant to the four men who were there, "'each one looking precisely like the cat, after it had eaten the canary. "'The cake was scarcely cold and must have been horribly sticky, "'and I remember wondering, as I sat there, Which one would need the doctor first, and what the doctor would do if they were all seized with cramps at the same time? But they were not ill, not in the least, which proved that the cake was well baked. If they had discovered the other one, however, there is no telling what might have happened. At half after ten yesterday the chaplain held service, and the little chapel was crowded. So many of the enlisted men were present. We sang our Christmas music and received many compliments. Our little choir is really very good. Both General Phillips and Major Pierce have fine voices. One of the infantry sergeants plays the organ now, for it was quite too hard for me to sing and work those old pedals. Once I forgot them entirely, and everybody smiled, even the chaplain. From the chapel we, that is, the company officers and their wives, went to the company barracks to see the men's dinner-tables. When we entered the dining-hall, we found the entire company standing in two lines, one down each side, every man in his best inspection uniform, and every button shining. With eyes to the front and hands down their sides, they looked absurdly like wax figures waiting to be wound up, and I did want so much to tell the little son of General Phillips to pinch one and make him jump. He would have done it too, and then put all the blame upon me without loss of time. The first sergeant came to meet us and went around with us. There were three long tables, fairly groaning with things upon them, buffalo, antelope, boiled ham, several kinds of vegetables, pies, cakes, quantities of pickles, dried apple duff, and coffee, and in the center of each table, high up, "'was a huge cake, thickly covered with icing. "'These were the cakes that Mrs. Phillips, Mrs. Barker, and I had sent over that morning. "'It is the custom in the regiment for the wives of the officers every Christmas "'to send the enlisted men of their husbands' companies large plum cakes, "'rich with fruit and sugar. "'Eliza made the cake I sent over, a fact I made known from its very beginning.' to keep it from being devoured by those it was not intended for the hall was very prettily decorated with flags and accoutrements but one missed the greens there are no evergreen trees here only cottonwood before coming out general phillips said a few pleasant words to the men wishing them a merry christmas for all of us judging from the laughing and shuffling of feet as soon as we got outside the men were glad to be allowed to relax once more at 6 o'clock Fay and I lieutenant Baldwin and lieutenant Alden dined with Dr and Mrs Wilder it was a beautiful little dinner very delicious and served in the daintiest manner possible but out here one is never quite sure of what one is eating for sometimes the most tempting dishes are made of almost nothing at holiday time however it seems that the post trader sends to St Louis for turkeys celery canned oysters and other things. We have no fresh vegetables here except potatoes and have to depend upon canned stores in the commissary for a variety, and our meat consists entirely of beef, except now and then when we may have a treat to buffalo or antelope. The commanding officer gave a dancing party Friday evening that was most enjoyable. He is a widower, you know. His house is large and the rooms of good size so the dancing was comfortable. The music consisted of one violin with accordion accompaniment. This would seem absurd in the East, but I can assure you that one accordion, when played well by a German, is an orchestra in itself, and Dues plays very well. The girls' East may have better music to dance by, and polished wax floors to slip down upon, but they cannot have the excellent partners one has at an army post, and I choose the partners. The officers are excellent dancers, every one of them, and when you are gliding around, your chin or perhaps your nose getting a scratch now and then from a gorgeous gold epaulette, you feel as light as a feather, and imagine yourself with a fairy prince. Of course, the officers were in full-dress uniform Friday night, so I know just what I am talking about, scratches and all. Every woman appeared in her finest gown. I wore my Nile green silk, which, I am afraid, showed off my splendid coat of tan only too well. The party was given for Dr. and Mrs. Anderson, who are guests of General Bork for a few days. They are en route to Fort Union, New Mexico, Mrs. Anderson was very handsome in an elegant gown of London smoke silk. I am to assist Mrs. Phillips in receiving New Year's Day, and shall wear my pearl-colored Irish poplin. We are going out now for a little ride. End of Letter End of Section 1